the uh, 17th century philosopher Francis Bacon said, writing maketh an exact man. And one of the ways that God has sharpened me and formed me over the past several years is by forcing me to think deeply about my own life and vocation through the writing of sermons. So this morning, while I admit the discomfort of preaching on short notice, um, I have to see this moment on the moment of my ordination uh, as yet another occasion when God has given me the opportunity to process, albeit half-baked, how he's worked in my life. I want to talk with you this morning about our calling, our calling as priests. In a few hours, God willing, I will be ordained, set apart as a priest in the Lord's church. And it's an incredibly serious event, one that is often the culmination of months and years of preparation. But it's also a celebration not just of God's calling on my life, but of God's calling on each of our lives. Because the truth is, we're all priests. Some of us just get to wear pretty white dresses. But when God created the world, He specially designed human beings to rule over it and to reflect all of its glory and beauty back to Him in praise and worship, and wonder. And now, centuries and millennia later, that same special vocation has fallen to us who are made in the image of God. Listen to how one theologian, Abraham Kuyper, talked about it. If everything that is exists for the sake of God, then it follows that the whole creation must give glory to God the sun, moon, and stars in the firmament, the birds of the air, the whole of nature around us, but above all, man himself, who priest-like must consecrate to God the whole of creation and all life thriving in it. Wherever man may stand, whatever he may do, to whatever he may apply his hand in agriculture, in commerce, and in industry, or his mind, in the world of art and science, in whatsoever it may be, constantly standing before the face of God, he is employed in the service of God, he has strictly to obey his God, and above all, he has to aim at the glory of his God. Now, that's the charge that God has given to each one of us. We're all priests, we're all in holy orders. And God has placed each one of us in different spheres of his creation. Some of you in the home, some of you in the schools, in the government, in the marketplace, to uncover the beauty, the hidden potential of the world, and to bring it slowly but surely under the reign of King Jesus. And what I'd like to do this morning is to look at all three of our scripture readings. I'll remind you of them since they're not printed in the bulletin all three of our scripture readings and find in them three barriers that block us from growing into the unrepeatedly unique people 
that God has created each one of us to be. And the first barrier is fear. This comes from our reading from the book of Acts, chapter 18, that Jill read for us. Uh, I mentioned earlier how God seems to form me, seems to have formed me through the process of my own sermon writing. This passage was actually the first one that Aubrey gave to me to preach here at Incarnation. And when I saw it, I laughed because I was filled with fear. Um, I remember taking a long walk the night before down Wolf Street thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? So here I was in a new place, literally a thousand miles to the mile. It's funny, literally a thousand miles away from where I lived before in Louisiana. I was in a new tradition with a new church family, new friends in a new role, and I was scared. So you can imagine, once again, the strange relief I felt when I read in Acts 18, 9 through 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Now, disregard the fact that Paul only stayed for a year and a half after that. <laughs> why, why would God, why would Jesus confront Paul with this message unless Paul was afraid to begin with? You don't say, do not be afraid to someone who's not afraid. God had given Paul remarkable success in Corinth up to this point, but his success wasn't celebrated by everyone. The Jews viewed Paul's success as a threat, and we can infer from the whole of this passage that they started making attempts on his life to harm him, to kill him. But God wanted Paul to stand firm and to continue in his work despite his fears. Did you know that the most common command in all of Scripture is do not fear? Do not fear. Do not fear. Over and over again. Countless times, God tells us not to be afraid. Now, what does this mean? It means that fear is a primary weapon that the enemy uses on us to keep us from fulfilling our priestly roles in creation. It means that there's something big about this weapon of fear. And what are the fears that hinder us? For Paul, it was the fear for his life. But for us, don't we so often deal with the fear of inadequacy? The fear of failure? Is there something in your life right now that God is calling you to do? A project to take on? But you're hesitant to do it because you're afraid? We need to realize that fear is a deadly weapon that our enemy uses against us. It causes paralysis and indecisiveness. It causes complacency and timidity. And when we live in fear, we end up having a skewed view of who God is. Like he's going to call us to do something and then abandon us, leave us out to dry. But whenever God tells someone in the Bible not to fear... Did you know that he almost always, nine times out of ten, follows it up with, for I am with you. 
is that's what he says to Paul. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. And so God puts his Holy Spirit in us to direct us and to guide us, to help us when we reach those seemingly insurmountable aspects of our calling. For me, it's church planting. I'm deeply excited to be a church planter. It's what I've always wanted to do. But the undertow of that adventure is a world of fear. What if I fail? What if it turns out to be a lot harder than I thought? What if, once I'm on my own, I begin to feel incredibly alone? These are all fears, daggers that the enemy uses to pin us down and to keep us from fulfilling our unique roles in God's creation. But we have to hang on to that promise that God will be with us. And you know, that's been the overwhelming sense for my family and me here in Harrisonburg. I began with fear. We didn't know how certain things were going to work out. But as I've continued to follow Jesus here, I've sensed his comforting presence I've experienced his provision and his encouragement and his love. This is how God deals with all of his priests, each one of them, every kind. He provides for them. That's the deal. Even in the Old Testament, if you're going to be a priest, you devote your entire life to God and God provides for you in ways that you can't even begin to imagine. That's what he's done for me. And that's what he promises to do for you. So that's how we can deal with this first barrier of fear, by hanging on to the promise of God's presence with us wherever we go, whatever we do. But there's another barrier that keeps us from growing into our priesthood. It's this destructive barrier of comparison. Think back to that beautiful passage from our gospel reading, John 21, verses 20 through 25 where Jesus is having these tender conversations with two of his disciples, John and Peter. Jesus asks Peter a question and then gives him a unique job to be the leader of the church. And we get the sense from the passage that Jesus and Peter, they're walking along the beach, having this conversation. But suddenly, Peter turns around, sees John, and asks Jesus, well, what about him? He's covetous. And this makes even more sense when you stop and reflect on the dynamics between Peter and John throughout this gospel. Their characters are often linked together. And especially as the gospel comes to an end, typically, whenever they're linked, John succeeds and Peter fails. And you can sense that tension in this passage when Peter looks back at John And the narrator, who is John, describes John as the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper. You see, Peter wanted to be the best. He wanted to be the only one leaning on Jesus' chest. The only one, the, the totally unrivaled one in his vocation. The author Marilyn Robinson has written in one of her novels, I don't exactly know what covetous is, but in my experience, it's not so much desiring someone else's virtue or happiness as rejecting it 
and taking offense at the beauty of it. So do you see the difference? Covetousness would not be nearly as deadly to us if we were able to genuinely admire someone else's gifts and wish we had them. There's at least a modicum of decency in that. No, covetousness at its heart isn't just a desire for someone else's stuff or job or possessions. It's also a desire for that other person not to have those things. For that other person not to be happy. That's what's so destructive about it. But let's jump back from Marilyn Robinson's fictional account to John's non-fictional account. Why was Peter so covetous of John? So why was he so vulnerable to comparing himself with him? It's one of the smallest details in this passage, but we can't overlook it. It's the key. Verse 20, John tells us that Peter turned. Here he was, walking with Jesus, following Jesus, talking with Jesus, being led by Jesus, but then he turns away from Jesus. And instead of looking to him for purpose and meaning and security, he looks, well, he does what we do. He looks at his coworker. He looks at his friend. He looks at his fellow church member, and he compares himself with him. Peter has lost sight of the gift, the unique gift that he is supposed to be to the world. Here he was, walking with his creator, just like Adam did in the Garden of Eden. He's talking to the one who formed him to be his unique, unrepeatable self and to bless the world through his God-given personality and gifts. But he's arrested at once by insecurity. He stops. He takes his eyes off of Jesus, off of his calling, and he looks instead to John and to the perhaps earthly success that he might receive instead of him. I wonder if C.S. Lewis had John 21 in mind when he wrote The Horse and His Boy. It's one of his novels in the Chronicles of Narnia series. The main character, Shasta, this boy who would soon become a future king, was dealing with jealousy over his companion, Erebus. And Aslan the lion, who's Lewis's depiction of Jesus, tells him, Child, I'm telling you your own story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. The weapon of comparison is so powerful in the hands of our enemy. He uses it on homemakers to crush their creativity and shame them into paralysis. He uses it on artists to keep them from depicting the truth and goodness and beauty in their own unique ways of God's world. He uses it on pastors to make their ministry about themselves and not about the people who are right in front of them. That's what's going on here. But all of us are as vulnerable as Peter. The only way to fight this destructive tendency to compare is to keep our eyes on Jesus. As the psalmist says, it's he who made us and we're his. He knows what he's doing with us. And his loving gaze is all that we need 
to thrive in our own vocations and to grow in our own personalities to be more like Jesus. So that's the second barrier. Let's look at one more barrier from our Old Testament reading that keeps us from growing into our calling. It's the barrier of despair. Despair. I think there are times when we can all relate to Elijah from our passage in 1 Kings 19. He's just finished the showdown of his life, revealing the one true God to the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He succeeded, but now the tide has turned against him. He's in the twilight of his ministry, but as he looks back on what he's done, he's discouraged. He doesn't see that it's amounted to anything, at least anything like what he thought it would be at this point. So what does he do? He isolates. He hides in a cave. And we do that. For some of you, that might be what you do as soon as you come home from work. Work is hard. And sometimes every step forward from nine to five or whenever you work is two steps back. And all you want to do when you come home is isolate and sulk. You had other plans to accomplish, but they just didn't succeed as you would have liked. Notice, though, how gently God comes to Elijah here. First of all, he finds him. Just like he found Adam in the garden, who was hiding in shame and embarrassment and in discouragement, God finds him. He comes to get him. And what does he do? He reveals to Elijah the quiet work that he has been doing beneath the surface all along. Elijah, far from failing, was preparing the way for a new work of God, a new generation, just like we saw John the Baptist doing in our gospel passage last week. His role lacked glory. And at the end of his life, he was covered in obscurity. But my goodness, he prepared the way for the greatest of God's works in the world, the sending of Jesus, the Messiah. We all need to realize that our work, for all its importance, is preparatory for something newer and better and greater. We're all just trying to make tangible representations in our broken world of the inbreaking kingdom. And it's hard work. But what leads us into despair is when we start thinking that we're the Messiah, that everything depends on us, that if we don't do it, no one will. I've had to learn that in ministry. Pastors, perhaps above all, find it difficult, incredibly difficult, to be patient and let God work out his purposes in his own way, in his own time. We all have our role to play. We're priests, but we're not the Messiah. And our work is to point people away from ourselves and to him. And the more we do that, the more happiness and purpose we'll find in God's world. We're all priests. We're called to take the beauties, sometimes hidden, in creation and reflect them back to the Creator in praise. To each one of us, just like Jesus says to Peter, Jesus says to us, you follow me. 
you in all of your unique in all of your uniqueness with all of your quirks with all of your gifts you follow me and we can do this only by turning from fear trusting in god's presence looking solely at jesus and refusing to compare ourselves with each other and knowing that for all the work that we're doing god is always and already doing something mightier It might be quieter, it might be slower, but when the kingdom of God is ushered in, in all of its fullness, everyone will finally see the glory and beauty of God that we as priests have been pointing them to all along. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.